Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. This year during our Advent season, we are digging into what it looks like to be part of a different story. Together we are rediscovering what Christmas is really about through spending less, giving more, loving all, and worshiping fully. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. We also want to invite you to be a part of our Christmas Eve service, Tuesday, December 24th at 1, 3, 5, or 7 p.m. Father, we want to recognize that you're present this morning, that your spirit is here and in us. And not only are you present, but you're at work. And we pray that you would take your word this morning and infuse it into us, into our hearts and into our minds uh, in such a way that it, it changes us, that it, it uh, transforms who we are, especially in terms of how we love you and how we love others, that, that we may leave here more motivated to do both. And we pray this in, in Christ's name, amen. You know, I was thinking this week, and this is kind of a strange analogy, but I was thinking that Christmas is lot, a lot like a vacuum cleaner. It, it, it sucks you in and, and it holds you captive. I, I mean... <laughs> And as it holds you captives, it steals away your energy and your joy and your perspective. I mean, there's just so much going on at Christmas. Uh, think of all the things you have to do, the presents you have to buy, the shopping you have to do, the meals you have to prepare, the relatives you have to entertain, the meetings you have to go to, the kids' presentations you, you have to attend to. And in all of that, what you're trying to do, you know, is to make everybody happy. You're trying to create these perfect memories that uh, all the people around you can look back and, oh, Christmas. Uh, and it's just exhausting, and you're just sucked dry. Um, well, the goal of this series ha- ha- is really to try to take you out of the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and uh, the goal is to help us get a little perspective by talking about Advent and, and taking us into the larger picture. Advent is a word uh, that comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming or arrival. And it's actually a translation of the Greek word parousia. If you're around the Bible much, you may know that parousia is the word that refers to the second coming of Jesus. So Advent is this time where, you know, typically we, we think of Advent as just looking back to the baby born uh, but it's much bigger than that. It's looking at the arrivals of Jesus, looking at the incarnation, the first one when he comes as, as Savior and lives and dies for us. And also, it, it's, so when we celebrate Advent, we look back to that, but we also look forward to the coming arrival when Jesus comes back, this time not as Savior, but this time as King. And, and we're trying to look at those two grand realities so that they take us into a larger story and then inform or or shape then how we live in this moment. And this morning, what I wanna talk about is is that because of these two comings, the the coming of Jesus as Savior and the future coming of Jesus as King, 
when we understand that, it is to, to motivate us to love. In fact, to love all. Now, here's the thing. We get how Jesus coming as baby communicates to us that we're loved by God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We get that. We get that Christmas reminds us we're loved by God. What we don't necessarily get is that that reality of him coming into this world and eventually him coming back also is to motivate and enable us to love others. We don't get that connection. But that's the connection I want to talk about this morning, our, our, our responsibility to, to love others. And I want to do it by looking at a passage in the New Testament where, where the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, Romans, is bringing these two issues together, the, the arrivals of Jesus and the responsibility to love others. He brings these two together. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. This is a fascinating passage. He writes there, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So that's the love part. Now here's the Advent part, or the, the coming of Jesus part. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation, the coming again of the King, is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. If we want to understand this passage, the first thing we have to do is wrestle with this notion of love. What, what is, is biblical love? And the word used here is the word agape, and that's a very familiar word to us. We get that if you, you're around uh, churches much or Christians much. They talk about agape love all the time. Uh, but let me give you a definition, just so we're clear as to what it is. It's agape is to have a strong non-sexual affection or concern for a person and their good. It is a willingness to forego rights or privileges in another person's behalf. In other words, it's, agape love is a willingness to disadvantage yourself for the sake of another person's good. Let me say that again. Agape love is a willingness to disadvantage yourself for the sake of another's good. It, it, it's a willingness to, to be sacrificial for the sake of another. Okay, you get that. But here's the interesting thing. This word agape, which is so familiar to us, if you go back in, into ancient times when the New Testament was written and the early Christian community was formed, that word was hardly ever used. In fact, you can't even find it very often in the literature from that day. Just wasn't a common word. Now, they understood all kinds of loves and have all kinds of words to describe different kinds of love. They understand 
sexual love, they understand love that's in a marriage, they understand love of friends, they understand love of neighbor, they understand uh, uh, love of nation and love of tribe. They, they, they get that. They understand brotherly love and familial love. They, they get that. But they had no word to describe the kind of love that we talk about back then in the Christian community. So what they do is they take this little used word, agape, and they infuse their own meaning into that word to describe this kind of love. And they have to do this because it's so counterintuitive, so abnormal, so different than every other kind of love that the world is familiar with. Okay, uh, let's talk about that difference just for a moment. For one thing, this, this love is, object, uh, not, is subject-centered, not object-centered. What do you mean by that? Well, typically, when we love something, we love that thing because we find something attractive or appealing or desirable or beautiful in the object. Our love is typically object-centered. Human love is typically object-centered. That's why we love it. But this love is different. This love has nothing to do with the object and everything to do with the subject, the one loving. It's not about the one loved, it's about the one doing the loving. And that this love is dependent on the character and the quality of the lover, not the loved. So typically how we describe this is we say love is unconditional. This kind of agape love is unconditional, right? It doesn't depend on the beauty or attractiveness or likability or desirability or any of the qualities in the thing being loved or the person being loved. It has everything to do with the one loving the lover. It, it, it's unconditional, right? Second thing about this love is it's willful. In other words, um, it is a love that is not rooted in the emotion or the affection or in the feelings we have. It's rooted rather in, in, in your chooser, right? It's rooted in your will. It's rooted in, in, in a decision. Um, now, that's very different than how the world typically sees love. Typically, the world... Uh, says, I have an emotion, I'm attracted, I make a decision, I love. This, this love is different than that. This love doesn't say emotion, decision, action. This love is different. It says decision, action, and emotion. In other words, you choose to love another because of what's in you, and you make this decision. And because you've made that decision, then you follow that with an action. And then the interesting thing is that the emotion will often follow. In other words, I don't, I don't want you to hear me say this morning that agape love does not have emotion. It, it does. It's just that it's not rooted in emotion. It's re rooted in your, your will. That's where it comes from. It's rooted in a choice you make. And that's really important to understand, Right? Because if, it's, if, if love is rooted in emotion, in a feeling, 
then it's not something I can command or God can command, right? Look at your neighbor. Go ahead, look at him. Okay, I want you to feel love for them, warm affection for them. Now, unless they're your spouse or your kid, and if you don't know that person, you go, yeah, fat chance. That's hard. And maybe if it is your spouse or a kid, you're thinking, fat chance, that's really hard. <laughs> you see, I can't, it, our emotions aren't subject to our will. It's not that our, we can't impact our emotions, but it's always indirect, so it makes it very hard to command you to feel something. But I can command you to act in a loving way. Why? Because acting in a loving way is... It, it, you can do because you can decide, you can choose to do that, and thus I can hold you responsible for that, and I can command that. You say, well, does that mean love's just cold, hard, without, no, no, no. It's not that this love is without emotion, it's just that the emotion comes after. So the world's love is emotion, decision, action. Agape love is decision, action, emotion. Uh, look at what Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Familiar with this probably, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We usually apply that, you know, where, where your money is, that's, that indicates where your heart, your affection, your desires, everything. But there's another way of looking at it. What you treasure is what you choose to value. What Jesus is saying is what you choose to value, you know what eventually happens? Your heart comes into the picture. Your heart follows your decisions. Your heart follows your choices. Your affection, and desire, and emotion eventually follows the decisions you make. You act in a loving way and eventually your heart comes around. Isn't that fascinating? So very different because because that's not how the world thinks. The world thinks in the if-then proposition. If you're beautiful, if you're desirable, if you're likable, if you're nice to me, then I'll have this feeling and then make a decision and then act. And the Bible turns that all upside down. So, agape love is unconditional. Agape love is willful. The other thing that's interesting about this love is that it's, it's sacrificial. This was strange to the world back then. And I think it's strange to our world as well. Uh, um, I say that because I think that the besetting sin of our culture and world is self-interest. Uh, um, we are self-focused. We are selfish. That's just how we operate. And that filters not only into our personal lives, but even into our politics, right? It's me first, and it's America first, and it's all about us. And we legitimize that kind of thinking in our culture. We think it's okay to be out for number one. And the, the Bible comes along and says, well, that's, that's not really loving. Uh, loving is having a willingness to disadvantage yourself, to self-sacrifice, to not think about yourself first, but to put others before you. That, and that's so opposite our culture. I mean, think, 
Think how consumed we are with ourselves. What's the thing people most take pictures of with their phone? (laughs) What's that tell you about us? (laughs) I buy a camera so I can take a picture of me. And I take lots of them. And then I post them, right? So that the world can see me. And that's, that's our, our culture, right? That's okay. It's all about you. Have it your way, right? <laughs> so this notion that we are to treat others uh, and sac- self-sacrifice for others for their benefit, that's so radical. That's why they had to come up with a new word to describe the kind of love that's supposed to happen and be lived out by people who follow Jesus. Make sense? Okay, so we understand that word. Um, But then the question becomes, what does that look like? I I mean, how do I know how to love someone? What do I do? Well, this passage gives us a very practical standard, right? The practical standard is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you are to treat others by the standard you want to be treated. Now, just a bunny trail for a moment. Lots of people come to this verse and say, well, love your neighbor as yourself. That implies we're to love ourselves, right? And and, and we tell people you got to love yourself. The Bible tells you to love yourself. Nothing wrong with having a good self-image and acceptance and all that. But that is not what this is saying, (laughs) This is assuming that you already do love yourself. That's the natural bent of the human being is to be self-centered and focused on itself. He's assuming that. He's not telling you to do that. Self-love is the essence of sin, right? He said, no, that's your natural state. But you know how to love yourself, right? If you're hungry, what do you do? You feed yourself. If you're thirsty, what do you do? You get a drink. If you're not happy, what do you do? You you try to do something to make yourself happy. We get that. He's saying, great, I'm glad you get that. Now, that's the standard by which you are to treat others. It's not a command to love yourself. Sometimes when we wed pop psychology with bad theology, we get all kinds of Frankensteins. Don't do that. But do understand, if you want to know how am I to treat somebody else, what does it mean to love them, then you simply think, if I was that person and I was in their situation, what would I want somebody else to do for me? And I know how I want others to treat me. That's the standards by which I am to treat them. And that's very concrete and very simple. Love others as yourself. All right. So that's, that's agape in this passage. But then um, what Paul does is he, he, in this passage, gives us three truths about this, this love. And they're really fascinating and challenging and sometimes irritating. All right. I'm not sure you're going to like all of them. 
<laughs> the first thing he says about this love is that this love is an unpaid debt, right? He says, let no debt remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another. It's the first verse. Now, we transfer, translate this, this word debt as a noun, but in the original language, in the Greek language, it's not a noun, it's a verb. And the verb literally means to be obligated to, to have a duty to, to have a responsibility to. And the reason they, they, they translate it in this way, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to continue, the continuing debt to love, is they're trying to pick up the nuance of the meaning so we understand it. The verb is, let me get technical for a moment, it's in a present imperative. In other words, it's a command, and because it's in the present tense, it's a continue, it has the force of being a continuous command. In other words, he's saying this is something you always have to do. You're always going to be indebted or obligated to love other people. It's not a debt you can pay off. You can pay off your MasterCard. You can pay off your car. If you're really diligent, you can pay off your house. But you cannot pay off the debt to love others. It's this, this continuing debt, this continuing obligation throughout your life. It, it, it's part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus or to love others. Now, here's the problem. In our culture, we don't like the notion of duty and obligation, right? In, in our culture right now, we think that if I do something out of duty or obligation, it's just really not genuine or authentic. For something to be genuine and authentic, my heart has to be in it. And if my heart is not in it, then it's just, just not quite as valid, not quite as meritorious, not, not, it's not what I really want. Right? I don't want you to love me because you have to. I want you to feel it. You know? Otherwise, it's just not authentic. Do you know what that is? That's hogwash. That's your culture speaking into you and making you think in unbiblical ways. Folks, there is nothing wrong with duty and obligation. Look, in fact, I think loving somebody out of duty and obligation is not less meritorious, but maybe more meritorious. Think about it. If I have a feeling of warmth or affection for you, and then because of that feeling of warmth, I act in a loving way for you and maybe even in a sacrificial way for you, that's great. But, folks, the emotion, because it's rooted there, made that much easier, right? Because I'm just following my feelings. I'm just doing it in a sense because in one way of thinking, it's easy. Because I had this emotion empowering me. But if I don't have that warm feeling and I don't have that affection, in fact, if I don't even like you or if you're my enemy, but then I choose to love you and act that way, even in a sacrificial way, because it's my duty and obligation and it's the right thing to do, it doesn't mean that's inauthentic. 
It just means that that behavior is rooted not in my feelings, but in my choice, in my chooser. And in fact, that may be much more difficult than if I had this warm fuzzy that motivated me to behave that way. In fact, I would say it is much more difficult. It's much harder to love your enemy than to love your friend. And thus, acting out of duty and obligation is more meritorious than if you're driven, even though it's authentic, by feeling. Let me give you an example. It's 2.30 in the morning, and you hear the baby cry. Newborn, hungry. And you wake up, and you say to yourself, you know, I don't feel like getting up. In fact, if I get up now, it would be pretty disingenuous. I got to tell you, my heart just wouldn't be in it. So you roll over and go back to sleep. Do we say, oh, that was authentic? Is that what we call that? No, we call that child abuse. Right? So what do you do? Even though you don't feel it, you get your rear end out of bed and you go feed the baby. And at that moment, you hate doing that. And at that moment, you may even hate the baby. It's not driven by emotion. It's driven by duty and obligation. And then when you crawl back in bed, if your husband leans over and says to you, well, that was disingenuous. (laughs) Your heart really wasn't in that. No credit for you. What are you going to do? Look, folks, if in your marriage or with your kids or with your friends or with others or even with the others or your enemies, if you let emotion be the prime driver, you're in trouble. Because you know what you're going to be? Going to be a bad spouse, a bad parent, a bad friend, a bad community member, a bad lover. But if in all those relationships you let duty and obligation play a part, you will end up paying the debt to love others. Duty and obligation are not bad things. Duty and obligation oftentimes is what holds marriages together. Duty and obligation is what keeps you committed to your kids. When you really don't want to be, duty and obligation provides this incredible foundation for friendship. Duty and obligation is what fuels us to love people we don't want to love, people we don't like, people who perhaps are even our enemy. It's not a bad thing. 
We live in an emotionally driven world and at times we need to push back against that. So, love is an unpaid debt. Second thing he says is that love is without exception. It's really interesting to go through this passage and look at how he describes the object or the people we're supposed to love. He says we're supposed to love one another. You can think of this in concentric circles. Uh, one another means we're to love people who are like us, other believers, our family, our friends, uh, our tribe. You know, they're in that inner, inner circle, okay? We get that. We're, typically, we're pretty good at that. And then he says later on, love your neighbor. Well, that, that circle's a little farther out. We usually define that in geographical terms. My neighbor is those people who live close to me. Jesus blows that definition up in the parable of the Good Samaritan because the question there is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, he answers it through that story, and he says, your neighbor is the person you have the opportunity and the resources to love. And if God brings somebody into your sphere who you have the opportunity and resources to love, that's your neighbor. That's a little more difficult. But it's even more challenging. Here he says, for whoever loves others. That's really a bad translation. Because the word there is heteros. And it literally means different. Okay? And we translate it in the plural as others. It's, a, it's not a plural noun. It's a singular and they put a definite article or a the before it. Uh, who cares then? You care because what it means is it should be translated as love the other. Love the different ones. Love those who are not like you. The other. That makes it really challenging, right? So we're pretty good at loving those people who are like us or maybe near to us. Where it becomes really challenging is loving those who are different from us. Now notice what Jesus says about this. In Luke chapter 6, he's talking about our love. And he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you love those who are in your inner circle, your family, friends, your tribe, they, they love you. If you love them, who cares? Everybody does that, right? <laughs> Even sinners love those who love them. Big deal. And if you're good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that, but well, now, now he's talking about the other. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Do you know who he has in mind here? The Romans. Now think about the Romans, right? They were foreigners. They were in the homeland of the Jews without uh, uh, their invaders. And not only are they there illegitimately, but, but 
They're misusing their power. They're mistreating the Jews. They're abusing the Jews. They're persecuting the Jews. And the Jews hated them, and rightfully so. They were the enemy, and Jesus is saying, oh, that's who you want to love. Do that. That has merit. Sinners don't do that. We don't do that very often either. But that's the other. We're, we're good at live, loving those like us. We're not very good at loving those who are not, those who are different, the other. And what happens is we want exceptions to those who we're supposed to love because if we, they're an exception, then we get an exemption. Don't have to love them. So if they treat me like a jerk or they disrespect me, they're an exception. I get an exemption. Or if there's someone who doesn't live up to my moral standard, they're an exception. I get an exemption. If they're gay or transgender, exception. I get an exemption. If they're Muslim or Jewish or an atheist or just dress funny, exemption. They're the exception. If they're undocumented or they're here illegally, exception. I get an exemption. We all do. There are the other. If they don't speak my language or don't want to learn to speak my language, exception, I get an exemption. If they're black or brown or any color different than my color, exception, I get an exemption. If they're... If they're not like me, exception, I get an exemption. No, you don't get an exemption for anybody. There is nobody you do not have to love. There are no exceptions. One another, neighbor, the other, that's the world. Now listen folks, this applies to all of our lives. It applies to our private life, and our public life. It applies to our personal values and our political values. It applies to our home life and our community life. It applies to our work life and our business life. If you have a client or an employee or an employer and you're not treating them as you want to be treated, you're not loving them. You're not paying the debt. And later on in this passage, Paul says, love does no harm. So if my decisions or my choices or my vote directly or indirectly harms other people, I'm not paying the debt. We are not called to act in self-interest. We're called to act in the interests of others in the entirety of our lives. Love is disadvantaging yourself for the sake and the good 
of others. And there are no exceptions that make us exempt from the obligation and the duty to love. One last thing. Not only is love an unpaid debt, is love without exception, but love is the fulfillment of the law. Look at the passage really quick. It says it a number of times. Forever loves others has fulfilled the law. And whatever the commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor. Love is the fulfillment. What, what is he saying? He's saying, first of all, that behind all those commands that you read in the scripture, their foundation is love. The, the reason you, you don't commit adultery is because it's unloving. It, it harms your family. It harms your spouse. It harms the community. And no matter how much you wrap it up in romantic love, that's baloney. It's unloving at its very core because you made a commitment, you have a duty and an obligation, and you cannot simply be driven by feeling. The reason you don't steal is because when you steal, it's unloving. You're, you're disadvantaging somebody else for you, which is just the opposite of the love. You're supposed to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the other. Underneath all those commands is this issue of love. And, and what that means is that if we focus on the foundation, which is loving others, then if we do that, everything else falls in place. You know, Jesus had a personal creed. Creed is simply a short statement that encompasses your values and your beliefs. Jesus was to love God with all your soul, heart, strength, and mind, and love others as yourself. And he says, if you do that, that's the whole ball of wax. That's it. You got it. And that should be our personal creed. And we should say that to ourselves 10, 20 times a day. Love God, love others. If I do that... That's all God asks. If I do that, I pay the debt. So, okay, Nick, I've got that. But how does that fit with him coming and coming again? Well, look what Paul says really quickly. And do this understanding the present time. It's the present time. He's saying, understand where you are. You're between the two arrivals, right? The coming of Jesus as Savior, the coming again as King. And then he says, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. He's saying, look, you're not here. You're here. He's coming. And his comings, they give us the model, the motivation, and the power to love. The model. Jesus empties himself of his deity. He disadvantages himself to become human. And then he sacrifices himself on the cross for us who are his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the model of sacrificial love for the other. That's the model. The motivation. He's coming back. Not, not as savior this time, but as king. And when he comes back as king, he's kicking butt and he's taking names. Right, because he's going to make everything right. He's going to transform and make everything as it should be. 
And that should motivate us, right? Because the boss is coming. I want to make sure I'm doing what he's calling me to do. And those two things empower us because here's the truth, folks. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we are the hands and feet. We are his body, his hands and feet. And the world is looking at us to see if this Jesus thing is true. And the way they measure that truth is by how we love. And because he's loved us, and because he's loving coming again, we should love well. Let me leave you with one last verse. First John. For this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Since dear friends, since God so loved us, we also to love one another. Okay, I have to do something Christmassy because it's almost Christmas. So here's my, my Christmas part of the message. How many of you put up Christmas lights? Yeah. How many of you were cheap and bought cheap Christmas lights? You know, the kind where one bulb goes out and the rest of the string? <laughs> How many of you regret making that decision? It's really irritating, right? Because those Christmas lights are wired in series. And what that means is the electricity comes into the light and, and it goes through the filament and makes the light glow. And then it goes out of that light to the next light and it makes it glow. And if one of those filaments breaks, if one of those bulbs breaks down, the whole rest of the string goes dead. So you get one of those little guns and you test everything and you get really frustrated. And eventually you throw the thing away and go buy more expensive lights that aren't wired in series. But... Folks, in some ways, we're like those Christmas lights, right? The love of God comes into us and lights us up. But we're wired not simply to, to be loved by God. We're wired to take that love and pass it on to others and empowered to do that. And if all we do is light up ourselves, but then never pass it on. Something's wrong. We're called to more than that. We're we're called to light up the world and pass that love. You know what, folks? We are called to love extravagantly, unconditionally, sacrificially, And we're called to extravagantly love not just those who are close and like us, but the other. In fact, even our enemies are called to love all. My prayer for us this Christmas is that we would be extravagant lovers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is not an easy challenge. None of us are extremely good at it. But we want to be better. And we know we can be, Lord, because we have the love of God in us. Help us be people who pass it on to others. Help us fulfill the debt that we always have to pay and live out the obligation of loving all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.